Well, praising the name of the Lord our God is what our lives are about. We continue our series this morning through the book of Exodus. If you open your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 4, we are going to see an amazing picture of Jesus as we continue to add images of Jesus to our Jesus portfolio we're developing throughout our lives, getting the best biblically grounded, well-rounded understanding of who Jesus is as we seek to understand him. We get a glimpse this morning of his astonishing authority, the power that he has. Authority is an interesting thing, isn't it? Especially when you grow up in a country like I did that started by throwing off authority, right? Fighting a war to get rid of the, the authority of King George over our lives. And so you can get this ingrained anti-authority mentality. Every time I see the bumper sticker, question authority, I just chuckle. And I think, as if we need any encouragement to do that, <laughs> right? Do I, I guess some people do, but man, it's not my nature. It's, it's not, and I don't think most people's nature to just blindly accept authority. I realize that some people, my goodness, in my experience personally and collectively, that's not our big problem. Questioning authority, challenging authority, bucking against authority is something we do quite naturally, and there's, there's some good reason for that. Often authority on a human level is driven by self-interest and sometimes brutal and authoritarian and, and just rife with sin. And you can understand why people are skeptical of authority and think we should be questioning. And to some degree, we should. But as Christians, we've got to have a wonderful understanding and appreciation of the rightness of authority, starting with God's. And then all the authorities he's put in our place. Question authority is something we do quite naturally, sometimes for good reason, but when it comes to God's authority, we need to understand it, appreciate it, and respect it. But there's a kind of authority we all deeply long for, isn't there? There's a kind of authority that we recognize has the capability of giving us greater freedom than what we would have otherwise greater liberties than we would have otherwise. There's a kind of authority that can set us free and not just imprison us. Authority can do either of those things. After college, I'm not recommending this for anyone. Please, just because preachers tell stories about their lives, don't, don't think they're ever giving advice or permission to do what they do. So parents, don't get mad at me if your child does this. But um, after college, I hitchhiked all over the country. Again, not permission. I'm glad I did it, but I would never tell anyone they should. But I hitchhiked all over the country for a couple of months, all the way up to Alaska and back to Connecticut. And I had amazing experiences. And I could tell you story after story about it, but I will refrain. I'll just tell you one. I was really good at hitchhiking, really good at it. I figured out how to get rides. I only waited for a ride more than 20 minutes, two times in two months of hitchhiking all over the country. And one was in Toke, Alaska, when it was just hunters who were not leaving town. But getting, my, my science of, of hitchhiking was trying to get a ride as far as I could. And you need to play a little psychological game with the driver. You put a sign, you don't just do that. You put a little sign where your next destination is in the key and where you put on. Like I'm not gonna stand in Seattle and put Connecticut. 
right? Because no driver is going to make that kind of commitment, right? Even if they are going to Connecticut, and you want them to connect with and relate. So you always put the next destination, sort of the next major city. So it's a nice chunk, but you're not asking too much of the drivers, right? So I would always put, and I remember I was in Spokane, and I was hitchhiking, and I can't remember the next destination I put on there, but it was a reasonable one. But I got a ride in Spokane, Washington, all the way to Rapid City, South Dakota. Yeah, yeah, 12 and a half hour drive. I got, that's, a, that's a big score for a hitchhiker to get a 12 hour ride. So there I was, I got a 12 hour ride from, from Spokane to Rapid City, South Dakota. And the guy had a Corvette. Now I worked my way out slowly to Alaska and I was trying to get back as soon as I could to my girlfriend named Donna in Connecticut and my family as well. But, but I, wanted to get back quickly. And I got this 12-hour ride all the way to Rapid City. It was just great. And the guy had a Corvette. We actually had a, a bungee cord my backpack to the back of his Corvette because there wasn't room for it in his Corvette. And I don't know how fast he averaged, but it was fast. And I was loving it. And we're flying in this Corvette. We had a great time. We had great conversations. I got to talk to him about Jesus. But when we got to Rapid City, he told me, oh, yeah, I own a water park here in Rapid City. Now at that point in my life, I didn't have money growing up much. I didn't get to, I think I went to a water park twice in my whole life at that point in my life. And here I was, and he said, and you can stay at the water park. I have a house, but I have an apartment at the water park, and you can just stay there. And feel, you know, we just closed for the season. Feel free to use the water park all you want. That's what he said. And I did. <laughs> I did. It was just amazing. Can you imagine all by, and I didn't care that I was by myself. That almost made it more fun. No lines, not one line. I didn't even have to wait for a friend to get on the water. And, and I did, I, I used the water park. I had complete access to a water park all by myself. It was unbelievable. The first night there, I think I, I was playing in the water park till midnight. Now, the only way I could have ever done that is if the owner said, go ahead. It's mine. You can use it. See, he had the authority to let me do something that was like a dream I was having. It was just great. See, there's a kind of authority that the owner of a water park giving you access to it can give you. See, there's a kind of authority that we realize can be wonderfully beneficial to our lives. And that's the kind of authority Jesus has. A kind that frees us. And not only frees us, but defeats the greatest enemies in our lives. See, authorities can do that too. They com can command a kind of warfare that defeats our greatest enemies, as we'll see. So here we have this amazing picture. This, this story of Jesus' astonishing authority is concentrated in just these few verses in Luke chapter four of one day in the life of Jesus, just another day's work for Jesus. In It'll just blow your mind. Watch. Listen to Jesus putting in a day's work here in Luke chapter 4. Let me pray. Lord, help us now as we go to your word. We need you to help us. We need the spirit to work. Lord, he inspired this word through these human authors, and he's still at work in we humans, illuminating our minds, transforming our hearts, making us more like Jesus, making us more unified in Jesus. Lord, we pray 
that you'd help us now in his name. Amen. Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 31. Speaking of Jesus, and he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. This becomes a very important place for Jesus. It becomes in some ways the place that supplants Nazareth as his primary location from which he does ministry. And it's in Galilee, not especially an important place as Nazareth wasn't either. On the north of the Sea of Galilee, this is where he gathers. We find later Peter is from this town. He has a home here. And what happens? And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. When you hear something like on the Sabbath, we need to pay attention. The Sabbath is this vital reality for us and for God's people. Never just read past these locations and these times things are happening. Very often they're incredibly significant. So it's on the Sabbath. Jesus would very intentionally do things on the Sabbath in in one uh, place because he wanted to defy lots of rules of man-made invention that misunderstood the Sabbath and his ministry was going to fulfill what the Sabbath is really all about. But he does it because he is now fulfilling the scriptural promises and the Sabbath promises, the rest God brings promises to his people, to creation. And so it's the Sabbath. And Jesus very often focuses his work very intentionally on the Sabbath, and that's what he does. He was teaching them on the Sabbath. Again, an emphasis on his teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. His word possessed authority. There's something highly unusual, even astonishing, when the people hear his teaching. Obviously not the standard run-of-the-mill teaching they heard, and they heard a lot of teaching, but this was different. And we'll talk about why in a bit. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him. Pay attention to that verb. Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, the man who was possessed, he, the demon, came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed Second time, the reaction of the people as first astonishment and then this slightly different word, this amazement is the response. And they said to one another, what is this word? 
For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simeon's house. That's Peter. Now, Simeon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. And now this day in Jesus' life starts to come to a close. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands, beautiful symbol of tender, compassionate, personal, individual attention and healing and care. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. And here's that verb again. He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. All right. Can you imagine? That's a day in the life of Jesus. That's another day's work for Jesus. So much packed in here that is so important. Jesus here, we see, has the kind of authority we desperately need. And even if you don't realize this morning how much you need Jesus' authority and power in your life, I want to tell you from good authority, the word, from the Word of God, that you need Jesus. You may come in here thinking you've got it all figured out quite well, but you need Jesus you need his power. You need his authority. You may be at a point in your life when you, where you think you've got things figured out pretty well. Some of you don't feel that way right now, but are still maybe striving to find solutions in other means or strategies or ways or solutions than running to Jesus as your overwhelming instinct when you're confronted with your needs that the physical and spiritual realities of life often bring home to you. The key here this morning is to recognize the power and authority of Jesus and recognize also how desperately we all need his power and authority in our lives. Jesus deeply meets the deepest needs we have. He has the authority to teach, we just saw. So he leads us back to truth. He has the authority to save us from our most powerful enemies. Most obviously in this passage, our spiritual enemies, the powers of darkness, and our physical enemies, disease and death. Jesus has that power, and we need his power. We need him. And Jesus' power over demons and disease, with an emphasis on his teaching woven throughout, brings an astonishing realization of his authority and is the main point of this passage. We want to exalt Jesus. We want to recognize our need for him, but we want the primary focus to be on Jesus himself. 
That's the point here. So often we rush to the application and don't focus sufficiently then on who Jesus is. And then we don't find the solution in him the way we should. It can be very easily convoluted into something that's always about us. And so easily do we preach messages that people find relevant because they're practically applicable, but they're not actually exalting Jesus and giving us an appreciation for him. And that's what we want to do every time we preach. That's what we want to do is understand who Jesus is better. Exalt him, adore him, and then yes, have our needs met in him. What we're seeing in this passage is that Jesus has power and authority that's astonishing over what you could call the intellectual, the the thinking. His word, his teaching informs us about truth so we can distinguish between good and evil, so we can know the difference between truth and lies because we don't boot up naturally knowing those things. Which is so countercultural, at least in this American context today, we're constantly told that the truth is within us. Look inside and you'll find everything you need. Find out who you are, affirm who you are, believe who you are. Then all of this selfism is starting to be the great idol of our day. The Bible repeatedly tells us that you don't find truth by starting at looking at yourself and in yourself. You need to look outside of yourself to God because we have sinful, fallen human natures that distort the truth and suppress the truth and pervert the truth and turn it into something for myself to exalt myself instead of to know and exalt God. And so we recognize that Jesus has authority and power over the world of ideas, our intellect, but he has power and authority over the spiritual realm as well. We're not just physical beings. We're not just thinking beings. We're spiritual beings. We have a, every one of us, a a human spirit, a soul, if you will. And, And this is fundamental to understanding humanity correctly from a biblical perspective. And we need to realize that Jesus rules and reigns over the spiritual realm because it's not just us who have spiritual existence. It's the demonic realm as well. The satanic realities of life. There's a phone. Is somebody's phone dinging up? Ah, yes. Is this you, Walt? Your phone keeps dinging. Oh, is Walt, did Walt go somewhere? Walt's phone keeps. I'm not going to read his text messages. Oh, Walt's bookie wants to know he won in his last bet. Um, um, I think that's Walt's phone. I don't know. I don't want to blame him if it's not, but it's Okay. If it is. Um, so, so, yeah, where was I? Yes. Jesus' authority over the intellect. Jesus' authority over the spiritual realm. And, wonderfully, Jesus' authority over the physical realm because we need to view ourselves in holistic ways. As, yes, minds, bodies, and souls. And Jesus has a holistic authority and power over all we are and over all of reality for that matter. It's so important to understand reality itself and humanity itself if you're going to understand Jesus and his ministry. 
And then we've got these four scenes, these little vignettes, these, these pictures, these glimpses of Jesus at work actually fulfilling what he said his ministry was all about, what John the Baptist said his ministry was all about. The first one is in verses 31 and 32, where people are astonished by his teaching. The second scene in verses 33 through 37 is Jesus' authority rebuking a demon and healing a man in the process. Scene three in verses 38 and 39 is Jesus rebuking sickness in a woman. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law of a fever, a bad fever. And then the fourth scene is just a general picture of what we've already seen in verses 40 and 41, where Jesus heals diseases and rebukes and casts out the demons of many. A more collective idea without ever losing the individual focus. So let's look at these four scenes. The first one, scene one, people astonished by his teaching authority. As we said, this is on the Sabbath. This is the first of five Sabbath healings in the book of Luke. And we see here Jesus is fulfilling what Scripture promised would happen when the Messiah came and what the Sabbath was all about. It was about rest in God. It was about dependence on God. It was about God providing every one of your needs so you can rest. And he weaves Sabbath thinking into everything he does. The whole law has a Sabbath quality to it because the whole law is about dependence on God. And so here Jesus is, goes to the synagogue, the place where they gathered and listened to the scriptures, taught and discussed and sometimes debated. And Jesus comes to fulfill these. Remember, this is what he said he was going to do. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and report about him went through all the surrounding regions, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. That's what Jesus accomplishes. And then look at verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord. This is what Jesus says his ministry is about. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what his ministry is about, and that's exactly what we see happening here. This is what John the Baptist said Jesus' ministry would be all about. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. He said, therefore to the crowds, chapter 3, 7, John the Baptist, that came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come, bearing, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. That's the day he said they are in. And listen to the description of the one who would bring the kingdom of God in its judgment and its salvation. Verse 16. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who's mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into its barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus is bringing the kingdom in these divine authoritative rebukes over the powers of darkness. 
in this cleaning up of the problems our sin has created, Jesus is bringing amazing teaching. That's what he's doing. And he's, he's bringing what we needed him to on the Sabbath. Sabbath rest from all the travails that our sin and our rebellion against our creator brought about. His teaching is astonishing to them. Now we need to understand why. His teaching was astonishing in both its content and its method. They're astonished by the authority of his teaching. And the content of his teaching was unprecedented. It wasn't something new. Jesus was very concerned. They realized he wasn't coming up with something new, but he was coming up with something far deeper than they had ever understood. Far different than most of them expected. Jesus is bringing an amazing, astonishing content, unprecedented insight and understanding and application of the word of God. His method as well was astonishing and different. You know, it's interesting. Luke doesn't highlight this, but Mark does. The authority is contrasted in Mark and it's contrasted in, um, in Matthew when his authority is talked about with the rabbinic teaching, the way the rabbis taught, the rabbinic method. And if you understood how rabbis taught, it was so different than the way Jesus taught because their, their teaching was like good scholarship these days. You gotta footnote what you, what you have there. But Jesus didn't use footnotes. He didn't use endnotes. He came with his own authority. Look, look what it says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount here when Jesus finishes this incredible three-chapter sermon in Matthew. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Mark makes the same point in the parallel passages we're looking at this this morning. So the teaching method that's so different than their teachers is important for us to realize here. You know, Luke probably doesn't highlight that because he's, he's got Gentiles very much in mind as he writes this book. But we need to understand this authority that Jesus comes with. And, and rabbinic teaching was all based on previous authorities that came before you. Yes, you wanted to interpret Torah for sure. You, you wanted to interpret God's word. But, but you would depend on layers of rabbinic authorities and teaching and interpretation that built up through the centuries that you would depend on. And what Jesus did was so different than this. What does he do? I actually have an example for you of this kind of rabbinic teaching from the, from the Mishnah. L look at this. This is about how to make something to carry something on the Sabbath. Don't get caught up in the content. Watch the method. Look how it starts. Our rabbis taught. Pow, right out of the gate. Hananiah, however, stated, Beit Shemaiah ruled, Beit Halil ruled, and when you say Beit, that means house, right? Um, temple Beit Or is down here, right? The, it, 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 it's this house, this whole rabbinic tradition, this whole stream of thinking. And it, look, it goes on. Did not Rabbi Ben Barhana state in the name of Rabbi Johan? Ula, Rab Judah. Look at all these rabbinic authorities that are being appealed to. Rab said the Halakha, whole collection of rabbinic teaching. First to none, Samuel said, and Hananiah. Samuel ruled in agreement with Rab. And it just keeps going. Is this amazing? Hananiah's ruling, name of Beit Halil, Rab Judah, Samuel, Rabbi Metanah. Samuel told, look, it just keeps going. Rab Judah. 
uh, Kahana, Rabbi Nauman, and, and they all just keep going like this. And so Jesus doesn't teach this way. How does Jesus teach? It's just astoundingly different. Jesus doesn't say, uh, like my rabbi said, and like, like Rabbi Nauman said, and like Rabbi Kokba said. No, he said, you've heard it said, an eye an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I tell you, turn the other cheek. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Well, if I say if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery there already. You've heard it said, keep your oaths. I say don't make an oath at all. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. And he just keeps going on like this. You've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies. I say love your enemies. Just you, yeah. He comes in his own astounding authority. His content and his method was so different. Look what he says about his words. First, he talks about the word of God in general. I tell you the truth, heaven and earth will disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until all is accomplished. That's how he views the word of God. And then look how he views his word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He sees his words as on an equal plane with the very words of God. So what's Jesus doing? He's blasting away at all this traditions of men that's getting in the way of really understanding Torah. And he's saying, let me tell you what this this means. In his authority. And he also can prefaces his statements by saying, amen, amen. In English translations, verily, verily in the King James, or truly, truly. He prefaces his statements with a New Testament version of thus saith the Lord, except in a first-person perspective. He's saying it as the Lord. No wonder they found his teaching astonishing. And they never leave behind this understanding of Jesus' astonishing teaching. Because his teaching is astonishing. But it it continues right now into scene number two. Jesus rebukes a demon and tells it to shut up. Right in the midst of this teaching, uh, a man shrieks in the synagogue. He cries out with a loud voice. And the demon says, ah! And I think this word means... Uh, What are you doing? What what do you have to do with me? His teaching brings about this strong response from this demon in this man. And he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? He knows where he's from. What's that calling? Doxing someone? He knows his address. He knows where he's from. Have you come to destroy us? I think that plural here is me and the man I'm possessing. Because if you know if you take me out, you're going to take him out in the process. We see that's not true. But I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Incredible moment here where Jesus confronts a demon who's taken over a man right there in the synagogue. It's, it's just stunning that the teaching includes this demonic influence, oppression of this man, and Jesus heals him. He tells the demon, be muzzled, literally. Shut up and come out of him. And he throws the man down, but the man's unharmed. Jesus and this man win big right here. And they're amazed. 
And it's very interesting, the response. that We say of astonishment and how amazement, but it, they don't believe, leave behind Jesus' words here. What is this word? It's interesting. They don't say, what is this exorcism? They say, what's this word? What kind of power do the words of this man have that he can tell demons what to do? But he can, and he does, and he rebukes this demon, and he comes out of him. You don't typically think of Jesus' primary character traits as rebuking, but he's a profoundly important rebuker here. He rebukes this demon. It doesn't call this man harm, and they're amazed, and they say, what's this word? With authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits. They come out to his teaching, and his word of authority in the demonic realm is astonishing to people. He rebukes this demon, and then we move to the next scene in Peter's house, scene three, where Jesus rebukes again the sickness, the, the high fever. It's interesting, Dr. Luke gives a a good diagnosis. It's not just your average run-of-the-mill fever she can go around with. She's in bed. Jesus has to stand over her. She's laid out with this fever. It's a high fever, he says. And the same verb, he rebukes the sickness. He rebukes the fever. And it left her. And then I love this. And immediately she rose and began to serve him. You know, when you see these television so-called healers, isn't it amazing how much mumbo-jumbo they usually have? You know, they're making these big, they're like magicians. You know, Brady's over there, right? Brady, isn't it right that most of what you do has nothing to do with the actual trick? Like, you do all this extra stuff. It's Mr. That's right. And, and that's what fake healers do. Jesus says, get out of her fever. And it does. No big production, no misdirection. It's, it's quite direct. He, he tells the fever, same verse, he rebukes the fever, and it leaves her. Amazing that this woman is healed so quickly, and I love the response. She gets up and starts doing something incredibly practical, serves them, and no doubt makes them a meal, which is what her role would have been if she hadn't been sick. I love the practical, sort of mundane nature of the response to this healing. Sometimes people are healed when they can't walk for 38 years and they run through the temple. She gets up and starts serving. It's kind of like Jesus after the resurrection and he makes his friends breakfast. It's one of the most stunning, contrasting images in the Bible. And here this woman's miraculously healed and she makes him food. It's beautiful. The Christian life is mostly mundane. But incredibly important at the same time. And then we have this general healing and casting out of demons again in scene number four. As Jesus goes about not ever losing the personal and individual compassion of this, but as the sun sets, Jesus heals diseases and rebukes and casts out the demons of many. There's the verb again, right? Look at verse 41. And he rebuked them and when allowed, not allowed them to speak, he says, shut up again to these demons. He doesn't want them being the ones to let people know who he is. And so we see these healings and these, the, the, these casting out of demons happening broadly now. Now there's something I want you to notice. These demons know who Jesus is. He's the Holy One of God. He's Jesus from Nazareth. 
He is even declared by them to be the Christ and the Son of God, the Holy One. Here's the point. It's not enough to know what's true. Demons have accurate theology, often more accurate than the disciples. (laughs) So what's the difference? They don't trust out of that knowledge. They don't worship out of that knowledge. They don't depend on Jesus out of that knowledge. They rebel all the more. They tell him to get out of here. They reject him all the more in the midst of realizing who he is. And as the sun sets on this another day in the work of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, here are some major points. One, Jesus is taking back his world. That's what he's doing here. It's his world. He's the creator and sustainer of everything, and it's been overtaken by the powers of darkness, by satanic forces. And humanity and its rebellion, we, we followed with them in their rebellion, with our own rebellion, and we all, like sheep, have gone astray. None of us has submitted to the authority of Jesus in our lives as we're created to do. So Jesus is taking back his authority. He's taking back his world in his authority to do that. Second, the spiritual realm, people, is real, and it's powerful, and that's our primary battlefield. We need to realize this. Some of you are very in tune with this, and I'm thankful for you because I can so easily get up in the day diving into it, wanting to fix problems and bring solutions and get things sorted out and clean that up and make make this mess go away. And we need to start our days not on our phones but on our knees. We've got to be people who engage the warfare of the day that's always raging the way God would have us. Jesus' miracles are foreshadowing the miracles the apostles' ministries continued. There's no place for a merely naturalistic worldview as a Christian. We've got to recognize that there's something spiritual going on in everything, even a fever. There's something spiritual going on because we're spiritual beings and the spiritual realm is something that we don't see, but it's as real as anything. There's a godless worldview that results in loneliness, alienation, and in our day, it's been fascinating to see an increased concern about the spiritual. Most people want to consider themselves spiritual in some way. They recognize the spiritual realm. They feel lonely without something bigger than just the physical world, and so they're longing for it, and you just go and look on book, for books on spiritual issues on Amazon, and you'll find thousands and thousands spirituality is really big today. Vague spirituality can feel helpful and empowering unless your enemies are the powers of darkness and disease and death. New age spirituality wants the power without the person of Jesus. We need him and his authority that he brings into every area of our lives. In the spiritual realm, has always been our primary battlefield. Listen to Ephesians 6, 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, although it includes that. It's not fundamentally about it then. But against the rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Which means our main weapons of warfare are prayer and the gospel and the word of God and the faith we have in those things things 
ultimately in God, ultimately in the access we gain into his power through a relationship with Christ. And Jesus is the message. There's no power without the person. It can't, we can't be like the seven sons of Sceva in Acts 19 who try to cast out a demon by saying, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Second-hand knowledge of Jesus isn't sufficient. We need first-hand knowledge and relationship with him. So the first thing is the spiritual realm is powerful and it's real. Second, evil is real. And Jesus rules over it. And our greatest problem in the evil is our own rebellion against God. That's how this whole problem started. And recognizing that is how it gets solved. And we recognize that sickness and spiritual darkness are only symptoms of a greater problem called human sin. That's how this whole thing started. Unless we deal with sin, we'll miss it. You know, I have... I didn't grow up in a charismatic church. I've had a lot of experiences with it. And, and one of the dangers in emphasizing spiritual warfare and emphasizing healing and praying for those things is those things can become the ultimate. When here in our passage and when God still heals and casts out a demon today as he still does, we need to realize that those are signs of a greater healing and that's the healing of our own sin problem. You know, I, I've read the Bible long enough, so I have profound compassion for people who are sick and demon-possessed in the Bible. I, I really have started to feel so much of Jesus' compassion for them. And I remember years ago, I, I was weeping over Jesus healing the man at the pool of Bethesda who, who, who couldn't walk his whole life, and now he can walk. And then I had this thought, and he's dead. That man's dead. And the man Jesus heals here, and the people he healed of demon possession and of physical sickness, they're all dead. Their bodies are in the grave. For some of them, they're awaiting the resurrection. But all of these healings, including the one in this passage, and the ones God does for us now, are all pointing to the ultimate healing that God wants to bring to us now. See, Jesus is not a motivational speaker or life coach. And preachers shouldn't be primarily that at all either. You see, this, the problem you perceive yourself to have will lead to the solution you seek. And so that means Jesus isn't just a motivational speaker or life coach. He's coming to take back his creation, defeat the powers of darkness, give your life, give you life. And in the process, he'll bring healing and freedom in the short term, but always pointing to the ultimate healing we have in a restored relationship with him when he takes our place. You see, Jesus doesn't just help you become a religious person or a moral person. Jesus defeats the powers of darkness and gives you life. He doesn't just give you life hacks so you can be a better person and have your best life now. No, when we're facing disease and death and demons, we want more than someone sending good vibes or positive thoughts. I don't even know what that means. I'm hearing that all the time these days. Sending you good thoughts, oh, I guess. Yeah, uh, I need more than that. I don't need your good vibes, whatever that means. I appreciate the effort, but I need more than that. I don't just need positive thinking. 
I can feel so empty when people say that. I need a savior. I need someone to go to war with the deadly foes I fight against every day. Someone who has the power and authority to conquer those foes, and Jesus does. And Jesus is showing his power over evil. And Jesus is the one who defeats the greatest enemies we have of our own sin and our own broken relationship with God and Satan who started this problem in influencing the first humans and continues to rule in ways he never should even in the lives of God's people. Jesus is taking back his world and I pray this morning he would take back far more ground in each of our lives than he has when we walked in. Jesus crushes the head of the serpent. First John 3 says, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And even physical suffering, everything in our lives has a spiritual component. We need to view these things holistically. That doesn't mean my headache is because I sinned. Doesn't mean my bad back is because I sinned, but all the pain in this world is a result of sin. Romans 8 tells us that the whole world is groaning but in the pains of childbirth, awaiting the victory Jesus promised he'll bring. And his greatest victory comes as he appears to be utterly defeated. And the last demonic gasp comes as Jesus suffers and dies for us. Jesus is who we need him to be. He has the power, he has the authority we all desperately need. The people are amazed, but amazement isn't enough. Astonishment isn't enough. We need utter dependence, saving faith in him. Jesus defeats our greatest enemies of death and the devil by taking our place and by becoming one of us on the cross. That's what it says in Hebrews 2. He delivers us who through the fear of death were subjects to lifelong slavery. One theologian puts it this way. The cross is where Jesus completes the work he began this day in this synagogue in our passage. We don't just need amazement and astonishment. We need faith and trust in Jesus. And that's what we're called to. Recognizing Jesus for who he is and his authority over every realm and trusting him more than ever. That's what we're called to. If you've never trusted Jesus, I want you to know you desperately need him. You need his power. You need his authority. And I pray you've been becoming aware of that this morning. If you have trusted Christ, I pray that you would lean on him like never before. Also realizing your desperate need for him and his authority in all things. We're going to sing a closing hymn that nails this passage in its lyrics. I'm so thankful Walt chose this, so aware of this passage. And as we do, please come forward for prayer. I'll be up here praying. Phil will be up here praying. Elders, uh, if you're here and you're not on the prayer team, I pray you'd make yourself available because I've been praying and Walt has been praying that we would recognize our need. You know, I go through this mental game when I want to come up for prayer sometimes. And I can think, man, if I go for prayer, people are going to start wondering what I'm asking for prayer for, and I must have some serious issue to have to go for. Please, every single day that there's an opportunity to be prayed for, I have at least 30 things I need prayer for. And I bet you do too. Don't don't be hesitant to ask for prayer and be prayed for. We have a prayer team that loves to do that. Phil, are you, who's here? Come on up, Phil. Just make yourself, I'll be up here praying. Who else would be willing to pray with people, for people? I pray that you would come up eagerly seeking to be prayed for because that's one of our primary weapons of warfare. 
Let's, let's be transformed by the power of prayer and applying the gospel in our lives as we all trust Jesus more.